This is Residence 104.4 FM. How you doing? Tis I, Nick Hennigan, coming at you again with another slice of literary London. Yep, I'm still hanging in there. And uh, I hope you've uh, you know, having a good week. I hope everything's kind of been literary. And we're also on bohemianbritain.com, by the way, which is my new site of sort of messy blog. It's a mix of these radio shows and occasional blogs and videos that I've taken and reviews of local theatre that I've seen and Edinburgh. And So anyway, go and have a look, see what you think. Tell me what you think, actually. Bohemianbritain.com. And uh, yeah, I'd like to know what you think. So it's a bit of a mess. And as I mentioned before, it only came about because this very programme that you're listening to now has been voted the number two Bohemian uh, podcast to listen to in the world. Behind uh, the number one in New York, which I'm... I've not listened to either. No, it's, I'm not being churlish. I just literally haven't got around to it. And I will do. I will do. Yeah, I will. Of course I will. Um, but right now, we're going to celebrate um, kind of a special event because on the 24th of March, 1905, we lost the author Jules Verne. Now, <clears throat> he's an interesting bloke was Jules Verne. He was actually called Jules Gabriel Verne. Uh, a Frenchman, born on the 8th of February, 1828. He was a novelist and a poet and a playwright, as well as all the things we know him for. Um, his collaboration with the publisher, Pierre Jules Herzl, led to the creation of the Voyages Extraordinaires. Excuse the accent. It's me, isn't it? Yeah, okay. But uh, there was a series of best-selling adventure novels, which included, of course, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, which he wrote in 1864. You're also known for things such as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, 1870, and Around the World in 80 Days in 1872, which, of course, inspired Michael Palin, ex-goon and traveller, so many years later. And did I enjoy Michael's con- uh, um, uh, exploits? Yes, I did, Michael. If you're listening to this, I love you. You are nice. Anyway, uh, I, I once stood on his writing partner's foot in Griffith's Jones's house, but that's another story. Um, so his novels, Jules Verne's novels, not Michael Palin's, because they're very good as well, always well documented are generally set in the second half of the 19th century. And they were taking into account all the kind of technical and technological advances that were happening at the time. Um, I was also quite surprised to know, um, researching him for this programme, that he wrote numerous plays as well and short stories and autobiographical accounts. Um, he would also write poetry and songs. And uh, he also then wrote a smart ass scientific artistic and literary studies so uh, yeah a bit of an all round good writer was our Jules wish I'd met him well you know a bit late wasn't it because I'm not that old but um, he's Verne Jules Verne anyway of course um, has been ooh, I, uh, sort of his work's been adapted for all sorts of media film and television um, since the beginning of cinema actually uh, as well as for comic books and theatre and opera and music and video games um, I remember at my school uh, in Birmingham Wheeler's Lane Secondary Modern. Yeah, I failed me 11 plus. Everyone had to take it back then. It's not a good scheme. But anyway, let's not get there. But it was a good school. Wheeler's Lane Secondary Modern. And at Christmas, we used to have a film projector bought in as a kind of a Christmas event. We'd all go into the hall and watch a film. Now, bear in mind, this was some time before actually videos. Thinking about it. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Never mind streaming services. And the very first um, film that I remember seeing, as about I was 11 or 12, was in fact journey to the center of the earth so i thought i'd I'd share a little bit of it with you in in a minute because i mean jules verne was considered to be an important author in france and most of europe um he sort of had a wide influence on a lot of the literary avant-garde he was kind of involved in surrealism as well 
um, and uh, it, largely because of the highly abridged and altered transitions, uh, translations in which his novels have been, have been printed since the 1980s, his literary reputation really has improved. We've kind of learnt more and more about how clever he was. And this was an interesting fact. Jules Verne, this is one for the pub quiz, kids. Oh, yeah. Jules Verne has been the second most translated author in the world since 1979. Has he, Nick? Yes, he has. Now you know. Well, according to my research, I've only got one source for that. Anyway, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Yes, second most translated author in the world since 1979, ranking below Agatha Christie, but actually above William Shakespeare. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Well, you do now. Yeah, he's sometimes been called the father of science fiction, a title that has also been given, of course, to H.G. Uh, Wells, another great writer that I was a fan of. Um... In the 2010s, apparently, Jules Verne was the most translated French author in the world. Um, and in France, 2005 was declared Jules Verne year on the occasion of the centenary of the writer's death. Um, so it's, it's an interesting story. He was actually born on a small artificial island on the River Loire um, in France. Um, and it was the house of his maternal grandmother. Uh, and uh, he had quite a good childhood i think at the age of six he was sent to boarding school yeah never mind and then uh, his education was was quite good i mean legend has it that in 19 oh, sorry 1839 at the age of 11 jules verne secretly procured a spot as a cabin boy on a three-mast ship with the intention of traveling to the indies and bringing back a coral necklace for his cousin caroline so he's always been into travel hasn't he our jules Yes, I think you could say that. But we're going to mark the passing, his passing, uh, March 1905, the 24th of March. I'm not sure when you're listening to this, but, um, you know, it's March. It's March now. It's March 2023 right now. Um, and I thought we'd, uh, yeah, I thought we'd celebrate him a little bit. And if you don't know anything of um, Jules Verne, have a listen, a little listen to this translation. A journey to the centre of the earth. Uh, it's actually 44 chapters, so we're not going to get too far through it. But I thought I'd start, and I'll just give you a sample, a soupçon of Jules Verne's. Um, a journey to the centre of the earth. This is chapter one called My Uncle Makes a Great Discovery. Looking back to all that has occurred to me since that eventful day, I am scarcely able to believe in the reality of my adventures. They were truly so wonderful that even now I'm bewildered when I think of them. My uncle was a German, having married my mother's sister, an Englishwoman. Being very much attached to his fatherless nephew, he invited me to study under him in his home in the fatherland. This home was in a large town, and my uncle, a professor of philosophy, chemistry, geology, mineralogy, and many other ologies. One day, <clears throat> after passing some hours in the laboratory, my uncle being absent at the time, I suddenly felt the necessity of renovating the tissues, i.e. I was hungry, and was about to rouse up our old French cook when my uncle, Professor von Hardwig, suddenly opened the street door and came rushing upstairs. Now, Professor Hardwig, my worthy uncle, is by no means a bad sort of man. He is, however, choleric and original. To bear with him means to obey. And scarcely had his heavy feet resounded within our joint domicile than he shouted for me to attend upon him. Harry! 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 I hastened to obey, 
But before I could reach his room, jumping three steps at a time, he was stamping his right foot upon the landing. "'Harry!' he cried in a frantic voice. "'Are you coming up?' Now, to tell the truth, at that moment I was far more interested in the question as to what was to constitute our dinner than in any problem of science. To me, soup was more interesting than soda, an omelette more tempting than arithmetic, and an artichoke of ten times more value than any amount of asbestos. But my uncle was not a man to be kept waiting. So adjoining, therefore, all minor questions, I presented myself before him. He was a very learned man. Now, most persons in this category supply themselves with information, as peddlers do with goods for the benefit of others, and lay up stores in order to diffuse them abroad for the benefit of society in general. Not so my excellent uncle, Professor Hardwick. He studied, he consumed the midnight oil, he pored over heavy tomes and digested huge quattros and folios in order to keep the knowledge acquired to himself. There was a reason, and it may be regarded as a good one, why my uncle objected to display his learning more than was absolutely necessary. He stammered, and when intent uh, upon explaining the phenomenon of the heavens, was apt to find himself at fault, and allude in such a vague way to sun, moon, and stars that few were able to comprehend his meaning. To tell the honest truth, when the right word would not come, it was generally replaced by a very powerful adjective. In connection with the sciences, there are many almost unpronounceable names, names very much resembling those of Welsh villages. And my uncle, being very fond of using them, his habit of stammering was not thereby improved. In fact, there were periods in his discourse when he would finally give up and swallow his discomfiture in a glass of water. As I said, my uncle, Professor Hardwig, was a very learned man, and I now add a most kind relative. I was bound to him by the double ties of affection and interest. I took deep interest in all his doings, and hoped some day to be almost as learned myself. It was a rare thing for me to be absent from his lectures. Like him, I preferred mineralogy to all the other sciences. My anxiety was to gain real knowledge of the earth, geology, and mineralogy were to us the sole objects of life, and in connection with those studies many a fair specimen of stone, chalk, or metal did we break with our hammers. Steel rods, lodestones, glass pipes, and bottles of various acids were oftener before us than our meals. My uncle Hardwig was once known to classify 600 different geological specimens by their weight, hardness, fusibility, sound, taste, and smell. Hmm. He corresponded with all the great, learned, and scientific men of the age. I was, therefore, in constant communication with, at all events, the letters of, Sir Humphrey Davy, Captain Franklin, and other great men. But before I state the subject on which my uncle wished to confer with me, I must say a word about his personal appearance. Alas... My readers will see a very different portrait of him at a future time after he has gone through the fearful adventures yet to be, to be related. My uncle was 50 years old, tall, thin and wiry. Large spectacles hid, to a certain extent, his vast round and goggle eyes, while his nose was irreverently compared to a thin file. So much 
did it indeed resemble that useful article that a compass was said in his presence to have made considerable nasal deviation. The truth being told, however, the only article really attached to my uncle's nose was tobacco. Another peculiarity of his was that he always stepped a yard at a time, clenched his fists as if he was going to hit you, and was, when in one of his very peculiar humours, very far from a pleasant companion. It is further necessary to observe that he lived in a very nice house, in that very nice street, the Conistras at Hamburg. Though lying in the centre of the town, it was perfectly rural in its aspect, half wood, half bricks, with old-fashioned gables, one of the few old houses spared by the Great Fire of 1842. When I say a nice house, I mean a handsome house, old, tottering, and not exactly comfortable to English notions, a house a little off the perpendicular and inclined to fall into the neighbouring canal, exactly the house for a wandering artist to depict all the more that you could scarcely see it for ivory, for ivy, and a magnificent old tree which grew over the door. My uncle was rich. His house was his own property, while he had a considerable private income. To my notion, the best part of his possessions were was his goddaughter, Gretchen, and the old cook, the young lady, the professor and I, were the sole inhabitants. I loved mineralogy. I loved geology. To me, there was nothing like pebbles. And if my uncle had been a little less of a fury, we should have been the happiest of families. To prove the excellent Hardwig's impatience, I solemnly declare that when the flowers in my drawing room pots began to grow, he rose every morning at four o'clock to make them grow quicker by pulling the leaves. Having described my uncle, I will now give an account of our interview. He received me in his study, a perfect museum containing every natural curiosity that can well be imagined. Minerals, however, predominating. Everyone was familiar to me, having been catalogued by my own hand. My uncle, apparently oblivious of the fact that he had, been, that he had summoned me to his presence, was absorbed in a book. He was particularly fond of early editions, tall copies and unique works. "'Wonderful!' he cried, tapping his forehead. "'Wonderful! Wonderful!' It was one of those yellow-leaved volumes, now rarely found on stalls, and to me it appeared to possess but little value. My uncle, however, was in raptures. He admired its binding, the clearness of its characters, the ease with which it opened in the hand, and repeated aloud about half a dozen times that it was very, very old.' To my fancy, he was making a great fuss about nothing, but it was not my providence to say so. On the contrary, I professed considerable interest in the subject and asked him what it was about. It is the Hames Kringler of Snortalsen, he said, the celebrated Icelandic author of the 12th century. It is a true and correct account of the Norwegian princes who reigned in Iceland. My next question related to the language in which it was written. I hoped at all events it was translated into German. My uncle was indignant at the very thought and declared he wouldn't give a penny for a translation. His delight was to have found the original work in the Icelandic tongue, which he declared to be one of the most magnificent and yet simple idioms in the world, while at the same time its grammatical combinations were the most varied known to students. About as easy as German, was my insidious remark. My uncle shrugged his shoulders. The letters, at all events, I said, are rather difficult 
of comprehension. It is runic manuscript, the language of the original population of Iceland, invented by Odin himself, cried my uncle, angry at my ignorance. I was about to venture upon some misplaced joke on the subject when a small scrap of parchment fell out of the leaves. Like a hungry man snatching at a morsel of bread, the professor seized it. It was about five inches by three and was scrawled over in the most extraordinary fashion. The lines shown here are an exact facsimile of what was written on the venerable piece of parchment and have wonderful importance as they induced my uncle to undertake the most wonderful series of adventures which ever fell to the lot of human beings. My uncle looked keenly at the document for some moments and then declared it was runic. The letters were similar to those in the book, but then what did they mean? This was exactly what I wanted to know. And you'll find out in a minute. This is Resonance FM, 104.4 FM. I'm Nick Hennigan. It's uh, Literary London. And we're celebrating the work and genius of a man who we lost. Well, I think it was 1805 we lost. 1905, I should say. Jules Verne. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And I'm reading a few excerpts from um, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, celebrating his genius. But what did those, what did those, what did those, what did that bit of paper, what was on it? Let's go back. And find out, shall we? Yes, I will. My uncle looked keenly at the document for some moments and then declared it was runic. The letters were similar to those in the book, but then what did they mean? This was exactly what I wanted to know. Now, as I had a strong conviction that the runic alphabet and dialect was simply an invention to mystify poor human nature... I was delighted to find that my uncle knew about as much of the matter as I did, which was nothing. At all events, the, the tremulous motion of his fingers made me think so. And yet, he muttered to himself, it is old Icelandic, I am sure of it. And my uncle ought to have known, for he was the perfect polyglot dictionary in himself. He did not pretend, like a certain learned pundit to speak the 2,000 languages and 4,000 idioms made use of in different parts of the globe, but he did know all the most important ones. It is a matter of great doubt to me now to what violent measures my uncle's impetuosity might have led him had not the clock struck two and our old French cook called out to let us know that dinner was on the table. Bother the dinner, cried my uncle, but I was hungry. I sallied forth to the dining room where I took up my usual quarters. Out of politeness, I waited three minutes, but no sign of my uncle, the professor. I was surprised. He was not usually so blind to the pleasure of a good dinner. It was the acme of German luxury. Parsley soup, a ham omelette with sorrel trimmings, an oyster of veal stewed with prunes, delicious fruit and sparkling moselle. For the sake of poring over this musty old piece of parchment, my uncle forbear to share our meal. To satisfy my conscience, I ate for both. The old cook and housekeeper was nearly out of her mind. After taking so much trouble to find her master not appear at dinner, was to her a sad disappointment, which, as she occasionally watched the havoc I was mating, making on the viands, also became alarm. If my uncle was to come to table after all... Suddenly, just as I had consumed the last apple and drank the last glass of wine, a terrible voice was heard at no great distance. 
It was my uncle roaring for me to come to him. I made one, nearly one, leap of it. So loud, so fierce was his tone. And that concludes chapter one. <laughs> my, my uncle makes a discovery. Chapter one of the, ooh, let me see, there's uh, 44 chapters of the journey, or a journey, I should say, to the centre of the earth by Jules Verne, the, uh, the good old boy, the uh, French writer, who passed away in March 1905. Actually, it was the 24th of March in uh, 1905. Um, he was sort of, uh, yeah, he, 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 towards the end of his life, um, he got chronic diabetes and complications from a stroke, which sadly paralysed his right side. And he died, passed away at his home in Amiens. Um, his son, Michael Verne, oversaw the publication of the novels Invasion of the Sea and The Lighthouse at the End of the World after Jules' death. The Voyage Extraordinaires, which we mentioned at the start of this show, series continued for several years afterwards at the same rate of two volumes a year. And it was later discovered, apparently, Michael Verne had made extensive changes to these stories. And the original versions were eventually published at the end of the 20th century by the Jules Verne Society. Yep, Society Jules Verne, I think it's pronounced, actually. Um, in 1919, just out of interest, Michael Verne published the uh, Barsac Mission, um, uh, whose original uh, drafts contain references to Esperanto, a language that his father had been very interested in, the idea of that European language. Um, and in eight, uh, sorry, 1989, Ver, uh, Jules Verne's great-grandson discovered his ancestors as yet unpublished novel Paris in the 20th Century, which was published in 1994. Can't say that I've read it, really. Um, mm, but he's, he's a, fine, a fine writer, wasn't he? After he'd done his first kind of bits and bobs of work, uh, received enthusiastically in France, in France by scientists and uh, writers alike, he, uh, several notable figures, contemporary figures from a ge geographers and spoke highly of, of Jules Verne and his work in critical and biological notes. But his popularity amongst read readers and playgoers, especially during the highly successful stage version of Around the, 80, uh, Around the World in 80 Days, which happened in his lifetime, led to a gradual change in his literary reputation. And uh, yes... I shall, I shall probably continue with that, uh, with that book because it sounds rather interesting, doesn't it? I'm thinking, I'm trying to find a kind of Jules Verne featured bit of music to end with. Um, and I think it might be this.
Oh, eh? That's fairly rousing, isn't it? Yes, that's, of course, the overture from Around the World in 80 Days, the uh, film, the motion picture uh, from 2004, uh, composed by Trevor Jones, and rather stirring it is. And that concludes our kind of look, our nod, our bigging up for Jules Verne, who passed away in uh, March 1905. There is actually a tomb uh, in Amiens. Jules Verne has his own tomb. Um, I've not been there, but, you know... Maybe one day. Um, and that's about all we've got time for this time. I hope, you've, uh, I hope you've enjoyed that. Please let me know if you haven't. Uh, well, yeah, go on. Uh, you can email. Probably the best way to get through is radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. Radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. I am on Twitter at Nick Hennigan. H-E-N-N-E-G-A-N. And we've got a radio account somewhere that I've got. I can't remember what it's called. Lit London Radio. Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe email. Probably easiest, isn't it? Um, or, of course, uh, have a look at bohemianbritain.com, www.bohemianbritain.com, which is my messy kind of blog. Um, and you'll probably find this program on it as well at some point in the future. But for now, that's it. Thank you so much for your company. I'm Nick Hennigan. This is Literary London on Resonance 104.4 FM. <laughs>